He is uh, who is going to lead us in this discussion and talk. He's uh, I met him for the first time yesterday morning. I was very much impressed with him. He's got 37 years sober, and uh, he's one of the. He, he, when he first came in the program, he knew the first 200 men that were still alive. Then his uh, group in, is in Cleveland. I'm not going to say Cleveland, Tennessee, as I'm wont to do, but Cleveland, Ohio, where he is a member of the Sister Ignatia group. Uh, he is a trustee, a vice chairman, and fundraiser for the Dr. Bob Home, which is a foundation. And uh, he was one of the original purchasers of the Dr. Bob Home, and uh, this group uh, formed the foundation and turned it over to the foundation to uh, keep it in perpetuity. And without, and I just, I think you'll enjoy a delightful man by the name of Don C. who's going to be our speaker. Thank you, sir. Oh, he's pretty tall. That was a good word, that perpetuity. Now, if I find out what it means, he may be swearing at me. You know, I never know. I'm Don Cassini, I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, uh, I don't know if this formal meeting, but maybe we should start with the serenity prayer because I need help. Uh, can we start with that serenity prayer, please? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, as he told you somewhere along the line, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, some of the 25 or 30, 40 members of Alcoholics Anonymous that were at the beginning uh, were still alive, and I got to know some of them. Uh, and now what I tell you is mostly can be found in the A Comes of Age, Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers, by the book of Sister Ignatia, the third co-founder, they call her of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's something that I believe we should remember, because if we forget our legacy, we're bound to not to have it any longer. We're going to lose it. And I find that so true in many other things in America today. But, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, I believe, started with a very... I believe there had to be a divinely inspired by God someplace. If you look back and what's happened, how it really started... It was uh, never to be. You see, long before we had Alcoholics Anonymous or we had the Oxford Group, in 1850, 1845, we had the Washingtonians. Now, somewhere along the way, I travel a lot, and I hear people say God will take care of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Oxford Group was a religious group, too. They thought God could handle that. And what happened is that in 1845, I believe the Washingtonians started. They met with a bunch of people in Baltimore. They were drinking in the bar, and there were six or eight of them. They decided to quit drinking, and they stayed sober. So when they realized they had something good, so they figured they'd start a new organization. We call it, after the president, first president, the Washingtonians. So during that course of the year, you got to remember, at the time of that time in America, there were maybe 100,000, I mean a couple, a million people at the most, and there was no means of transportation. There were no telephones. And by the fifth year, they had over three to five, the last figure, they, couple of, count, they buried 300,000 to 500,000 members in this Washingtonian movement. And at that time, their original cause was to help people get sober. And during the course of the next five years, they started to divert from everything else, and they went into temperance unions, slavery, prohibition, everything you could think of, and, and, uh, within one year, in 1845, they dissolved. It was no longer a Washingtonian movement because they diverted themselves from the singleness of purpose. So that went on, and there was nowhere help. And, you know, for years, 
There was nobody helping the drunk. The drunk went to the mental institution or stockades and look at some of the old uh, grapevine magazines to see the people in stockades in France. They had their heads in there and their heads stuck out through the boards, you know. And they were made laughing stocks of the community. And they would put them in institutions, mental hospitals. And they didn't know what to do with the drunks. So they went out for many years. And then there was a guy by the name of Matt Talbot. Uh, if you're a Catholic, you've probably heard of Matt Talbot. Matt Talbot tried to get sober. In 1924, he started, and he took a vow of poverty. And he put chains around his waist. And he chained himself up when he was in Ireland. And he went to work every day as a carpenter. And all he made, he gave to the church. And he slept on a straw mattress. He ate very little food. He was on a diet, or whatever it was at that time. And when he died in 1934, I think it was, they found the chains embedded in him, in his skin, because he had grew into the chains. And you see, that was what he did to stay sober. One more year, he would have started. You know, he never knew that. But see, he passed away, and he had no help. And he did it by sheer willpower. And you know, willpower, I think, sometimes works when we knock all its anonymous know that if we take a bottle of castor oil and try your willpower on that, it just ain't going to work. And I think we find out that it don't work in Alcoholics Anonymous, see, either. But anyhow, years back, then there was a guy by the name of Roland Hazard, whose father owned Allied Chemical, and he owned a couple of woolen mills in New York, and he owned a couple of big buildings, and he was a multimillionaire son. And he had plenty of money. And in 1932 and 33, he commenced to embarrass the family name, and they didn't know what to do with him. So they shipped him off to the greatest psychiatrist at the time, was Carl Jung and, uh, and the other psychiatrist was Freud. He was busy, so they sent him to Switzerland to Carl Jung. And uh, Carl Jung, uh, he said to Carl Jung, you've got a blank check here. Get my son sober, see what you can do with him. And Carl Jung says, well, we'll try so for one year, Carl Jung thought that they had Roland Hazard right there. They had him cured. And they realized that they sent him back to the United States, and he was on his way to La Harve to get the, the boat. Coming to La Harve, he got drunk. And he went back begging Roland Hazard to take him. And Roland Hazard said, I've treated you for everything I could find. I treated you for your symptoms that I thought was the problem. And that wasn't it, he said. So I feel that at this point, I'm not fair by taking your money. He said, but I think I will try this. I'll try it for six more months. You're going to have to pay me. Then you can go back to the United States. So he stayed there for six more months, and Roland Hazard came back, and he was dried out again, you know. And you can dry out anybody. You can put them in jail if there's not enough drugs in jail, because you get drugs there, too, you know, and wine. But you can get them sober in a mission. They'll stay there for 30 days or 90 days. Years ago, we had missions that people would travel around the country. They knew where every mission was, and the priest would put them up with the monks. And when they stayed sober as long as they were there, and then the minute they got out, they got drunk again. And there was no solution. So Roland had to find some sort of a solution. So when he left Switzerland at that time, he uh, came back to the United States and... Uh, he was told that to find the Oxford group, and that Oxford group was a religious group of people. And to find the Oxford group, maybe they had a thing that could help them. And uh, Roland Hazard came around looking, and their purpose at that time was to find someone 
that they could witness to, something like maybe your witness to today. They witness and they take you into their meetings, you know. And that was the way the Oxford group moved. moved the movement started. So at that point, Roland Hazard got sober for a bit. And then in 1934, he was still going to the Oxford group. He had to witness and he remembered somebody else that he knew at that time whose name was Debbie Thatcher. Now, there's a correlation because I think someone brought it up this meeting when I was talking about Dr. Bob's home. All of these men were from Vermont. Dr. Bob was the oldest of the group and he was at college, but most of them during their childhood saw one another in Vermont. And what happened was that the, the, there's three Vermonters and, uh, Abby at that time had moved to Albany, New York. And he was living in New York City at the time because his family was fed up with him. And he was from a wealthy family also. And they just didn't know what to do with him. And so, uh, he was looking for Abby. And when he found out where Abby was, he was in Albany again. And this time they were going to put him in jail because he had drove his car through the bay kitchen with the front room window of some woman's house while he was drunk. And he opened the car door and he said, could I have a cup of coffee? You know, she called the police. You know, sometimes angels come with guns and badges. And uh, they had him on trial. So when they, Roland got there, he said, listen, could I take him with me to New York City? And we've got a program there that seems to be working. We're helping one or two drunks every so often. And the judge was glad to get him out of Albany. He didn't want him there no more because he had a couple more counts. And they took him back to New York City and they went to the, uh, the church there in New York, Reverend Schumacher's church. And what happened, uh, Abby started to get feeling better. And by the same token, Abby would have to find somebody to witness to with. So they went out and they looked for somebody else and he remembered Bill Wilson. Now Bill Wilson at that time was having a great deal of difficulty. The stock market was crashing, had crashed, he was broke. He was off of Wall Street at that time and he was not working and things were bad. And he was still drinking that bad sub gin every day while his wife was working. So Bill was drinking in his cups one day and Evie found out where he lived in Brooklyn and he went over to Brooklyn on Clinton Street rather and he went over to Clinton Street and Bill was there drinking that bathtub gin and Evie walked in and his eyes were shining and Bill said, what the hell happened to this guy, you know? And he said, have a drink. Evie, Evie said, I'm not drinking today. And he said, what's your problem? You sick? He said, no, I got religion. Well, that took Bill back a little bit because Bill didn't believe in nothing but Bill Wilson. And uh, he, uh, it even tells you that in the book, he had no belief in his higher power. It was a difficult thing for him to come to understand. And uh, he told Bill this story, and he told him with one drunk talking to another. And what happened was that they went to the first meeting, and they both got drunk together before they went. <laughs> that was the sponsor, sponsor, and the sponsee, both getting drunk. So when they got there, Bill was going to be the gracious recipient of his wonderful program, the Oxford Group. So he put his hand up when the time came for anybody wanting to witness. He said, I think you're the greatest bunch of people in the world. If I can never do anything to help you, call me. With that, he and both, every Thatcher were thrown out the door. And that was the day when they had sniffers and that at the doors. So what happened, Bill finally went to the hospital for the last time in 1934. And he got the hat flash, you know, he got that spiritual wave coming through the room. 
in that uh, town's hospital. And he decided after a stay there, he was going to come out and straighten up the world. So he went around to all these drunk joints. He went to every place, mental institutions, to try to help. And it was to no avail. Nobody was getting sober. So come about February, he said to Lois, he said, Lois, he said, you know, he said, I'll tell you something. I've been trying to help all these drunks, and I am not getting anybody sober. And Lois said, well, Bill, you're sober, aren't you? And thank God she said that, because maybe that, if she said, Bill, you're not doing a good job, you know, we're not got drunk, and we never had the movement. So Bill stayed sober, and he kept on trying. And finally, in 1935, in March and April, they put together a deal to take over the Johnson Rubber Company in Akron, Ohio, by a proxy vote. And when they got to Akron, Ohio, the deal fell through. And here it was coming up to Mother's Day weekend, and Bill was left with $10 in his pocket, and some of us think that's, <laughs> but it was a lot of money then, you know. And they were staying at the Mayflower Hotel. So now he didn't want to drink, and he knew it was coming to that, because the bar was playing, the music was playing in the bar room, and he would hear the tinkling of the glasses, and people were having a jovial old good time. If you walk by that bar tonight out here, they call it the, some kind of a room right out here. They're having a ball in there, you know, and it all sounds so good. Until we get on the other side of that shot glass. And Bill knew that. So he decided he'd look up and there was a church directory on the wall. And it had about 10 or 12 churches in the area. And he went through them all and finally got one name. He remembered the name Tunk. And that was a word they used up in Vermont. And, and uh, he said, let me call Reverend Tunk. So he started to dial Reverend Tunk and and then he said, I'm a, I'm a rum hound from uh, New York City. He said, and I got to find another drunk to talk to. Do you know anybody in the Oxford group? And Reverend Tunk says, yeah, I know some people in the Oxford group. So what happened, he got a list of names, ten names, and he called nine. And everybody was too busy because the next day was Mother's Day. So he had one more name to go, and he knew the name of Henrietta Cyberling because they were the family that owned the Goodyear Tire Company. And they were members of the Firestone in the family. So he was afraid to call her, and he figured, well, it's the last one I got. He is that I'm drinking. And he called up Henrietta Firestone, Henrietta Cyberling, and she said, do you know any drunks? He said, because I'm a member of the Oxford group, and I've got to talk to them, one of them. And she says, I sure do know them. And she was having a Oxford group that met at her house every week. And what happened was that she gave him Dr. Bob's name. Now, I see three years in a row Dr. Bob had been going to that meeting, the Oxford group. Dr. Bob was a very spiritual man, a very spiritual man. He believed in prayer and he believed in everything that went with the Bible, but he couldn't stay sober. So for three years he went to that meeting and never once told the people his problem. So what happened was he was not getting sober. And what happened that day, he was drunk. He came home the day before Mother's Day, and he brought a potted plant home because his wife potted, liked potted plants, and he was potted underneath the table. And when Henrietta called at the house, Dan answered, and she said, uh, I've got a man here from New York that would like to talk to Dr. Bob, and maybe he can tell him about his drinking. So 
She said, well, he's potted and he doesn't eat the table. Now he's fell down. She said, but I'll bring him there tomorrow night. So the next night, Sunday night, Mother's Day, they went there. And when they got there, they were only going to stay 15 minutes because Dr. Bob didn't want to listen to this crackpot talk. So when they sat down, they started to talk. Pretty soon the dinner came and Bob and Bill didn't eat dinner. They went into another room and continued talking until 11.30. And Dr. Bob said that this was the first man that ever didn't talk down to him or tell him about the disease. He told him his story. So that started the first time one drunk talking to another, telling his story. And they got home at 11.30 that night, and, uh, and Bob stayed sober for a while. And then what happened was uh, the people that were at that house that day, there was a woman, she still lives at the gatehouse. She's 107 years old. She's Henrietta Cyberlene's sister, young sister. And she, they brought her back to this country so she could work with the Henrietta's children and the one man who saw the film, that was Congressman Cyberlin. He was a congressman of the United States, her son. And they were there, and uh, they stayed there talking. When they got home, uh, Dr. Bob's daughter was quite concerned, and she didn't know what happened. So Dr. Bob quit drinking. And he went along fine until about July the 6th or 5th. And he decided he wanted to go to a convention. Now, by this time, Bill had moved into their home. And he was living with Dr. Bob and Ann. And uh, he wanted to go to a doctor's physician's convention, and I don't know if that was the reason. Maybe he wanted to get drunk, we'll never know. But he went to the convention, and the next day on January the 8th, they put him off the train, dead drunk. And then they proceeded to sober him up, because on January, I mean June the 10th, rather June the 10th, it was, they had to, he had to perform surgery at the city hospital. Now, for those who don't know, Dr. Bob was a proctologist, and that's a... That's a hell of a place to have a nervous hand moving around, you know. So they had to get him sober at that time and do what they could. So they kept tapering him off, and if you saw the movie, they give you a, a sauerkraut juice with t stewed tomatoes and and uh, carol syrup, and that's what they were tapering him off on. And, you know, that had to be a tough bunch of people, you know, when you think about it. Today we have all these other wonderful things, Prozac and... All of this, Zen, everything will take you off easy. Librium and, hey, how are you doing, everybody, boy? You come for the message, how huh? are you going to give it tonight? <laughs> There's my conscience, see, come in. <laughs> Have a seat. So anyhow, on June the 10th, they took him over to City Hospital, and as he left the door of City Hospital, I got into the door of City Hospital, Bill handed him a bottle of beer, and he drank the last bottle of beer going into the City Hospital to perform surgery. And as he performed the surgery, when it was all done, they came out and they were waiting. And Dr. Bob didn't come back. So they figured, well, maybe he went down and talked to them along the way. So as they're waiting, and it's coming about at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and Dr. Bob hasn't arrived home yet. So what happened was they got him, found out he finally walked into the yard, and he went there, and they said, where have you been? He said, I've been out mending fences. Now, that was the first day sober. And he went out to make amends. And he knew what it was because they had the, they had the tenants. They had six tenants of the Oxford group. And he knew what it was to make amends. So he was out making amends and he stayed sober from then on, June 10th, 1939. That was the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous in Akron, Ohio, known at that time as the Oxford group. 
So at that point, they start going around, and pretty soon they got a hold of Bobby, Bob Dobson, who was an attorney. And uh, Bob Dobson was strapped down into bed. You know, they strapped some of those attorneys down when they get too wild. And they, he was creating a big, great deal of problems. And they took him, he comes coming off the Peral to hide. And they came, they said, we'll come back and talk to him tomorrow. So the next day they came back and they talked to Dr. Bob talked to him and Bill talked to him. And something they said clicked with Bobby, Bob Dobson. And what happened the next day, his wife came and she said, get my clothes and I'm getting out of here because those gentlemen knew what they were talking about. And he stayed sober from that day on until the day he died in 1958. So you see, it started to grow then. And that was the first, second member, of third member of AIDS. Dr. Bob was a co-founder. Bob Dobson was the first member, really. So what happened then, as they continued growing, and they were coming from Cleveland to Akron to get the message, there was a Doc Fagan from my area, my area that lived at at uh, Dr. Bob's house for a month and a half when he got sober. Unfortunately, he stayed sober 21 years and he proved that time does not mean too much. If you're not working your program, complacency sets in and he got drunk and he recovered before he died and he was sober when he died, but he had a hell of a time coming back. So you see, it started to take form and they were taking him and there, then Clarence Snyder came in, he was the sixth man, the second man that after Dotson came in was Ernie Gilbreth, and that was the guy that finally married Dr. Bob's daughter, Sue. And he was in his stories in the big book about the four-month slip. And Dr. Bob never liked him either, see? So anyhow, they're starting to realize something where along the line between Cleveland and Akron, they got 30 or 40 people sober. Now, the truth of the matter is, when they wrote the big book, they commenced to write that big book. It was written by probably 40 people that were still sober. And their papers would go back and forth through the mail between Cleveland and Akron and, and New York City, and they were starting to formulate the steps. Now, at that time, the doctor group only had five tenants, and they had the six tenants added in. So as they start to write these steps and going back and forth, it became a great problem. And the reason they wrote the book was so that the message would not be garbled in 1998, between 1935 and 39, when the book came out. It was the message they want carried, the message in the book. And now, if you look at that book, how many of you are sober under three years there? Anybody here? Look at the whole bunch of you. You think you could write that big book? No way. You know, think about it. Some of those men were only sober three years. And you so you see, it had to be divinely inspired how this thing came to be. I believe that. You may not believe it, but I believe it today. So they wrote that book, and it's still as good today as it was when they wrote it. So when they're writing that book, they finally got the book together, and Rockefeller came up with some money to print it. And then we had a guy, uh, his name slips my name, mine. He was the one that issued all the phony stock. You see, it started out with thievery and dishonesty. He sold the stock for 25 bucks a share, called it the Works Publishing Company. And the stock was worthless, you know. It was supposed to be on the stock market, but it wasn't. And then then they had the big dinner with Rockefeller, and Rockefeller gave him some money to start the book, and they thought the book would catch on. And while they print the book, they need to find the name for the big book. Bill wanted to call it A Way Out, as Bill sees it, probably, or something, because he had a lot of grandiose ideas. 
Because he could visualize selling thousands of these books and he was going to build this big hospital in New York and take care of everything. From Alateens, Alatots, where your dogs do, he could have a dog, Dogs Anonymous or something. And they only sold two books the first, <laughs> first time they published it. You know, they had a, didn't have a name when they wanted to publish it. So the manuscript was read and they put the thing together and so forth. Now they want to name the book and they don't know what to call it. That, that way out had 13 times it was trademarked so they couldn't do that. So there was a drunk there and the drunk's name was Joe Worth, I think it was. And he was come out of the sanitarium that first day. Come out of the sanitarium where he was living, a mental hospital, and they put him in their meeting thinking it would help him. And what happened is he was mumbling to himself and they were trying to get names and they were arguing. So he said, anonymous alcoholic, anonymous alcoholic. He kept mumbling that. And finally somebody said, why don't we call it Alcoholics Anonymous? And that's how the book got its name. Alcoholics Anonymous. He went back to the mental hospital that night and never came out again. He died a complete mental case. And that's happened to many. When I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, we all went to the mental institutions to see the people with a white brain. And there were plenty of them, you know. And his name was Joe Worth, and he owned he owned the New Yorker magazine. But he never came out to enjoy any of the fruits of his labor. And, you know, we think of all these things that happened, and the book came out, and they didn't sell too many. And then the people I think about now, I drive to Akron sometimes two or three times a week, and it takes me 45 minutes one way and 45 minutes back, you know. And uh, how these men did it, you know. It's, and today we are so fortunate you can fall into a meeting in Cleveland if I fall out of my house in five days, five days of the week, I can make two meetings a day. Just I can walk to them. And them days they got in those old cars. Now mind you, in 35 and 36 and 37 and 39, the country was at the height of depression. And they didn't have cars as we have known today. They didn't have heaters. And my, my uncle came in, Alcoholics Anonymous, in 41, and he related a lot of things to me. And he, he, uh, he told us they would wrap hot bricks in their blankets. Now, I don't think anybody as old as me here, but I'm going to be 75. I look good, don't I? Say yes, so I feel better. <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, they wrapped bricks in the blankets so their feet would stay warm, and they had a pitch in, gas was 11 cents a gallon, and they'd have to pitch in to get to Akron to get the program. And they fought for their sobriety. And you know, I think that today I say I can go to five, we got a thousand two hundred meetings in the city of Cleveland, not like Chicago or not like Los Angeles, but we got it big enough. So anyhow, these men kept fighting and Clarence Snyder was the sixth man in AA. His story's in the big book, he's known as the Brewmeister. And I remember I was in the hospital and Clarence, I, I didn't like him because I didn't know him. You know, I took a meeting, I disliked everybody when I was in the hospital. And we only had a five-day stay, see. And uh, he said to me one day, he said, young man, he said, when you leave here, you've got liver trouble. He said, if they give you a prescription, would you walk by the drugstore and say, I'll come back in six months to get the prescription filled? Or you get the prescription filled now so that you can get well. And I thought he was goofy. I really did. And I realized what he's talking about today. 
He's talking about taking these steps that was a prescription and putting them into your life. As I look back in retrospect, I see a great decline in parts of the country where people think you've got to wait two and three years to take an inventory. I really don't understand how they do it, but they do it, I guess. But you know, if you want to get sober, they knew then and they knew now, just as they did at Dr. Bob's house, talking that the men would go to Dr. Bob's house and within three days they had finished six steps. They took that inventory on the second day. Because if you get some of the garbage out, they knew it was better than keeping it all in there festering. So you started, and that's why they gave us a tenth step to continue that inventory. And I think that's one of the things that Clarence Snyder knew when he was talking about that, you know. So anyhow, the meeting started there, and they finally outgrew Dr. Bob's home, which is just a small bungalow if you've never been there. It's not big at all. The living room is about as big as this podium, maybe. And they got through that, so they went down to T.W. Williams' home, who was a member of the Oxford group also. And T.W. Williams opened up his home, and many people took that third-step prayer and started on their inventory on the third floor of Dr. T.W. Williams' home. Now, they were regular Christian members of the Oxford group. So they didn't have nothing to do with drunks, but they just wanted to help people. So after they outgrew that place, the group then moved to King School in Akron, Ohio. And it stayed there for two decades, 20 years, and then it moved over to a, another church over there. But at that time, Clarence Snyder was fed up with the fact that the Catholics couldn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous because of our religion. We were not allowed to assimilate with any organization as such as that. And Oxford was religious, and Washingtonians were religious. And they didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous, so we weren't allowed. So the Oxford group had not, we had not named it Alcoholics Anonymous yet, the book was out. So on November the 11th, they added the first Cleveland group in Cleveland, I mean March the 11th, the first Cleveland group in 1938 came to Cleveland. And it was the Oxford group at that point, was at Avi Gilrich's home, he was an attorney also, and Clarence had sponsored him. So Clarence says, now that you're the new man on the block, the meeting's at your house. And Avi said, okay, he went with it. And Abby stayed sober until he died, too. So they started there, and they continued on. And then finally, Clarence started at that meeting, their Cleveland number one group, they called it. And finally, he called up Dr. Bob one day, and he said, uh, Bob, he said, uh, we are no longer going to be affiliated with the Oxford group. We're going to call it Alcoholics Anonymous after the name of the book. And Bob said, I don't know if these guys in Akron are going to stand for that. And Clarence says, we got a bigger crowd here in Cleveland. We'll fight them off. And it actually started, they came from Akron in carloads to start the argument. And Dr. Bob pacified them all and he said, let it be. If it's going to work, it will work. Well, it so happened, Alcoholics Anonymous commenced to work on November the 18th, 1939, in Cleveland, Ohio, known as Alcoholics Anonymous. The first original group is still functioning today and has never had a cease in operating and that's the Borton group. And a day later, they started a group on the west side called the Orchard Grove Group. And from that, I don't bring the papers with me, but there was hundreds and hundreds of groups that started. If you ever come to Akron, it's got all this, is in our archives, it's 855 Ardmore. So they started there and they started growing in the groups. And at that point, 
the, the King School was in another location. And then they started, and then World War I started, so everybody was panicky. In 1941, Cleveland had 450 members. Akron, Ohio had 94, and New York City had about 84. And that was the extent of the membership in 1941. And just before the war started, they were, thought they were doing good. And all of a sudden the war started, and then the people started getting drafted, and it became a panic. So in the November, January of 1942, a fellow by the name of Harry Dankworth started the first original A publication in Cleveland, and it was called the Central Bulletin, and it's still in publication today. And that bulletin was for the sole purpose he was sent it to the members of the armed forces that were in service, and he would talk about Alcoholics Anonymous and what was happening in Cleveland. It wasn't just it was one shade of paper on two sides, and that was it. And that carried through the war. There's a Cleveland archives have some that were carried back from World War II that some of the men had saved. And uh, it shows you that if you want Alcoholics Anonymous and you want it to work in your life, it'll go to any lengths and it will work. Now, of all the people they went overseas in 1942 and 43 and 44, they had 400 people listed as members of the armed forces. And of that 400-some people, I think only 32 of them got drunk. So it proved to you that when they came here with that desire, and that's what they had to have at that time, a desire to quit drinking. And they decided to quit, and they made that decision. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous is either everything or it's not going to work. It's like God is everything or he's nothing. And they knew that at that time, and they stayed sober through the war. And the war was not nice, World War II. And they continued on, and they continued on, and it started to grow, and it grew by leaps and bounds, you know. Now, I knew some of the first men that were still alive when I got here. I knew Sister Ignatia was instrumental with getting the hospital started at St. Thomas. I know Father Ralph Fall, who came in in 1942. He was the first priest in the Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill Wilson, I'd been with him. Was, uh, was an honorary pallbearer when Sister Ignatia passed on with him. And I was with him in 65 when he gave his, I was 70 when he gave his last talk in, in Miami Beach, that short talk. 71, 70. In 65, I saw him in, in Toronto in the World Conference. That was the first one I went to. My Uncle Tommy came in in 41. My father-in-law came in in 1939 in New York City at the Oxford Group. My father-in-law never quit being a member of the Oxford group, he went to moral rearmament. And then after that, he just became a very nice guy. He was a nice guy. He didn't like me because I was a drunk, you know. But you know, I'll tell you something about both my uncle and my father-in-law. Both of those men never mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous to me. They said I was drinking too much. That if I decided I wanted to do something about the drinking, let them know. And they never mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous. And I finally asked them one time when I was sober why you didn't. He said, because at that time you had to ask to come to AA or you had to be invited. So both of them invited me, but I didn't know what the hell I was invited to. And of course, of all, I wasn't a drunk, you know what I mean? I wasn't an alcoholic. And you see, that's what made this thing like a jewel to those men because you had to come here and you had to want it. You had to want sobriety. 
And you have to be hurting bad enough. I'm reading a book now called A Little Red Book that was published in 1946 and describes the people who do, will not make AA. That's a perfect... I've been here long enough to know that that book is telling the truth. That's the same book that they tried to sell to Bill in New York in 47. Bill didn't want to buy it, so they sold it to Hazleton, and Hazleton kept the rights and printed it, and it's still print. And it's still as good today. And Bill and Bob, in the preface of the new book, said that they both recognized the value of the little red book, because it worked. But you see, these men that kept on coming along, and they were coming along, and, and Harry Ryan, who built the first jitter joint in Cleveland, and he had, that time he spent 50 bucks going for five days. That's not a bad deal, is it? And then he had Harry Smith, the guy from Akron. I heard him speak many times. I heard Alex Marconi, Warren Chisholm, who was the seventh man in AA. And all of these people continued this quest for sobriety. And, you know, it wasn't always easy. And, you know, when I came here, it was still small. It was, I looked at that film today. It was 160,000 members in, in the world with Alcoholics Anonymous at that time. The last conference I was at in San Diego was it. And the flags from all over the country. In Montreal, the 50th anniversary of AA, I think there was 170-some countries represented. And from that small beginning became this. And now I've got a meeting the other night. This guy's sober 54 years. He still makes the coffee every Monday night, I mean Tuesday night. And the people are complaining they decaf, the room is too hot or it's too cold. And I think about the times when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, we had 60-some meetings in the city of Cleveland that encompassed all the way to Mansfield, Ohio, and out to Meadville, Pennsylvania. And I had a difficult time when I got here because you had to have an honest desire to stay sober. And I was very fortunate about that time General Service decided to change the name from honest to sincere. And that year we had three Italians come in because we didn't have to be honest no more. <laughs> but anyhow, and that's what it became. And I, I could remember we'd meet in the greenhouse and I had to go to Meadville to find another Italian. And there was one other Italian who lived in Asheville. And uh, I didn't think Italians could be alcoholic, you know. But, you know, I, I, I went and we'd go to these meetings and some would be in basements with big round pipes, old furnace flues they had there. And the truck lines, no walk truck line let us have a room on the dock and they'd back a trailer up and they'd pull them leather things there and if it was snowing off the lakefront there, snow would come in and that was our meeting. Or in the greenhouse, the cats would be chasing the rats through the greenhouse, you know. But people stayed sober. People stayed sober. When I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, there was 75% recovery. It tells you that in the book. It talks you that in the good old timers. It talks about AA comes of age. And today, I don't know what our recovery rate is, but it's a far cry from 75%. Because those people came in at that time, they wanted sobriety. Plus, we had a program going that wouldn't fail, and that was sponsorship, which was part of it made this thing work and commitment and dedication. I I know that it's not easy, and I know the longer we're here, the road gets narrower. But our fathers that wrote these books, our forefathers and the founders, co-founders, they knew very well what was in store for us. And they talked about it. 
And they were concerned that A one day would lose itself from within. As I look around, I think sometimes we're starting to fail. And that's why I like to see people become interested in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if we don't remember our history, we're going to lose it. I think we've been given the greatest gift, and it said in one of the magazines that came out not too long ago, the greatest discovery in the 20th century was Alcoholics Anonymous. It did more to save lives and restore families than the self-vaccine did. Now that's covering a broad area there, and those who wrote that were people in the medical field. And I think we came in with the theory that psychiatrists could get us sober, and it proved with Carl Jung and Silkworth's psychiatry wasn't going to keep us sober. And why do we think today we're reverting back to using psychological effects to get people sober? And it's not working. I think the basic tenets of these, these 12 steps were the things that will make this thing continue to work as long as we are here and practice these principles in all our affairs. I think a group depends, our group, our group depends on the 12 traditions. The lady said last night, and I, I find it hard to believe, but I, I, I can tell you tonight when my friend over here, Frank, is going to speak, this room will be filled because he's going to talk about being drunk. He's going to talk about recovery too. But when you start inviting people to come here to traditions, they don't want to show up. <laughs> if you want to announce next week we're going to have a tradition meeting, nobody comes to the meeting ball game or something, their mother-in-law's dying, some excuse, but you know, traditions are what kept us, keeping us alive. And they knew that, and Bob knew that in 1949. And Bob got together with Dotson, the attorney, and drew up a plan of what he wanted laid out for to keep AA whole, because at that time, the only two people were running were Bill and Bob, and Bob was dying of cancer. And they drew up these plans with Bill Dotson, they presented them to Bill Wilson, and Bill Wilson wrote them a little bit differently, but he, and he was a master with words. And he would say, use the same word, he would use it three different ways. And he drew up the tradition so they could never destroy itself from within, we think. But it was laid out so that there would never be no leaders, they'd turn them all over to rotate officers, just like our foundation does and rotate trustees, and that's what's keeping us alive is our traditions today. Because without our traditions, we're going to lose our groups, and when we lose our groups, we lose ourselves. Because we're the most important thing today, but the group is secondary, and then our traditions are number one. And if we remember that, we're going to stay together for a long time. I think conventions are the greatest thing that happens in sliced bread. I mean, if you're here, you're here because you want to be here. You spent money to get here. And you know you're going to enjoy what you hear because they've brought people in to speak from all over the country. But you know, if we don't keep that group, our home group there, we're going to lose it. Where are we going to bring people when you get them sober? They knew, you know, I have to go back to a story. You know, I'm up in Buffalo a lot, through Canada. You know, an A didn't come easy. You know, in Canada, in St. Catharines, there was a guy drunk in an outhouse, you know. And you got to remember, now we're going back to 1938, 39, and there was no AA in Canada. But there was one doctor, a psychiatrist, in Buffalo, New York, who had an original copy of the big book. 
and he would hold a meeting there, and he had an ad in the paper, if you want to quit drinking, that's our business, if you want to drink, that's your business, something to that effect. That paper from Buffalo got to St. Catharines, and they didn't have much use for toilet paper because there was no money at that time to put it in the outhouse. So they were crinkling up this Buffalo newspaper, and this drunk that was in the outhouse, his wife had thrown him out of the house, he probably was there all night, and he was wrinkling softly in the t newspaper, and as he opened it up, he saw that thing, if you want to quit drinking, call us. Uh, write us a letter. So he wrote a letter to this doctor in, in uh, Buffalo, and when he got there, the doctor was charging him $5 a visit. Anybody wanted to join A. And he read right out of the big book. And then a guy by the name Art Cummings had heard about this from Cleveland, because he was a traveling salesman. And he went up there and he just told the doctor, you can't do that. The AA is free. And from that point on, the AA grew in Buffalo, and it grew in St. Catherine, and it grew up through all the Canadian provinces. And it's just gone that far. We're all over the world. You are never alone in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Bill foresee that he says, someday this book will be seen throughout the world. Those meetings, wherever you go, there will be a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can only tell you this, that it's proven itself to be true for me. I don't know where I would have been without Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't become a millionaire, that's for sure. But I'm probably the richest man in this room today, in my mind, you know. But you know, it's because of Alcoholics Anonymous that we've been given these things. So I overheard a conversation today. It's nice to hear how wonderful people have it when they get sobered up. But by the same token, let's think of all the people in this room who have never got their wives back, those who have never seen their children again, those who have lost everything and yet have stayed sober because they have the basic steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in their life. And the desire to stay sober is of the utmost importance. If we don't have that desire to stay sober, I don't think this thing will ever work. You know, as a guy walks around the country, he said, if you stay in the chicken coop for six months, you'll never become a chicken, nor will you lay an egg. And if you sit in these rooms and wait for it to rub off by osmosis, the only thing rubbing off is old age and the dust off your chair. And I think you've got to take an action. And Father Fall who wrote the Golden Book and Sobriety and Beyond. Uh, I was a friend of his. I made 13 retreats with him. He always said the magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous is action. And action is the magic word. If we don't take the action, nothing will happen. If I want to get home tomorrow, when I leave here Sunday, rather, I've got to take the action to pack my clothes, find my airplane ticket, get out to the airport, jump on that plane and get home and go to the, take the action to get to the parking lot to get the car, and turn the key on and get home. But it takes an action. And if you want sobriety, I believe today, more so than ever, it requires an honest desire plus the action. Willingness without action is a fantasy. I plant tomatoes in my garden. Some years I get fruit and some years I don't. But I always dig up the garden hoping that I get the fruit, right, from the plant. And always most Jody used to say, if you want potatoes, you better grab the hoe. And I believe that. I don't know how much you got out of that. I don't know. I don't talk from any script. I talk from the top of my head and some notes. 
But I hope you've got something out of it to make you realize how difficult it was for the people that were here first and how much easier we have it that the ride is... We've got shock absorbers on our ride today. Think of the cars that didn't have shock absorbers years ago. Think of the car. Think of those guys cranking those engines on the cold day, setting the advance, the spark, and the magneto to get the car started. We don't have to do that. It's been given to us. The books are here. The program is here. It works, and you have absolute proof. I think there's 1,200 people registered here. There's 1,200 people that this thing is working for today. And for the new person who may be in this room that thinks this is, and I've heard those conversations over the week too, that they're three or four weeks, sober, three days, it doesn't ever get any better. You're getting, doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same results. Misery. And once you get to the point where you have gangrene of the soul, and you can't stand yourself no more, then is the time that this program will commence to work. There's a direct line from the gutter to God. So I want to thank you for listening to me, and I hope I've helped.